This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And hello, it's us. We're here. I'm I'm bent over right now, itching my leg. You you are Strugs the Funk right now. Oh man, like <laughs> I just want everyone to know that Millie came into this recording being like, look, everyone, I had to unclip my bra in the back <laughs> so I could bend over. And itch this leg. <laughs> it wasn't to take the bra off because it was at the end of the day. It was literally like tactically, it, it's better to itch <laughs> this one spot if I take my bra off. Well, what what bit you? What got you? Okay, I I don't even know what to say because honestly, like I come to the podcast on a weekly basis talking about animals and creatures that I have no <laughs> idea, like. I have little to no information on and it's starting to make me feel like I just like am the stupidest person alive. It's not that you're stupid. It's that there are way too many bugs and animals on this planet. (laughs) To answer your question, I'm currently in Florida and uh, last week, like a full week ago, I had dinner with some friends, but they had this whole like outdoor dining set up like sort of near the water and I hadn't seen them in forever. They've been quarantining uh, in Florida. And so we decided to hang out and they made me this incredible dinner, amazing hospitality. And I remember when we sat down, of course, my mind goes to like, oh, let's put on bug spray because you just literally have to put on bug spray anytime you walk outside. Right. And that's not even just the South. It feels like now everywhere you should do this, like even in California. So anyway, the. I'm sitting there and I am covered in bug spray. And I was like, I don't know. I still feel like I'm kind of getting bit. I put on more bug spray. You know, I'm wearing shorts and a shirt, short sleeve shirt. And then I thought, I'm just making shit up. So let me enjoy the dinner and go home. (laughs) The next morning, I woke up and I have these red bumps all over the bottom half of my body. Like... All in places where I can't even tell you. Like, I'm just sort of like, how did something crawl up into my jean shorts and bite <laughs> me like at the top of my inner thigh? That's fucked up. Right. How is this possible? But they didn't look like mosquito bites. They were like not. You know how like mosquito bites kind of have that like welt looking thing? Yeah. This was like something else. And I was like, what could possibly have bitten me? And that's when basically my friends told me that it was probably a noceum. I don't even know what that is. Neither did I. I would have just been on straight to WebMD and be like, cool, I've got lupus. I'm dead. (laughs) Neither did I. So I look up noceum and spell just like I thought it would be like (laughs) N-O-S-E-E-U-M. 
<laughs> like I was like, surely it's not called that. It's I'm just getting it wrong. I'm just using the Southern way of spelling it. No, no, no. It's spelled that. It's called a no see them because you don't see them. Right. Oh, no. And there is like an actual term for them that's like within the like like a what, Latin phrase. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but down here in Florida, they're called a no and they're basically sand fleas. I think that's what we were told oh. by our producer, Alexis, who apparently got them in Cuba. Goodbye. And I got to tell you, the last week has rivaled the chicken pox in terms of how <gasps> miserable I felt. Like what? Itching my brains out. It's insane. No. Yes. And are they like, are they raised? So they're raised bumps still, like even a week later? Yeah. Like they're all Ugh. over the place and they're, they're not even really raised the weirdest part. They're just kind of like, it looks like a pock. Honestly, it's just like this small yeah. red dot that gets super itchy. And then you itch yourself into like a little scab and then they bleed. And then it, the cycle fucking continues forever. And oh my God, I, you know, I have a lot of allergies. So I was already armed with like a lot of like medicines and stuff. I was like, oh, I'm going to take a Benadryl and a Zyrtec. <laughs> and I have some prescription like, you know, eczema cream or something. I can put it on there. I'm already burned through that eczema shit. Like oh it's, it's over. Like I'm like, I don't have anything. And I'm down here. I have no creams of my to my disposal right now i straight up went to the drugstore and bought calamine lotion i was gonna say like is this something that just like a calamine lotion could help with or a witch hazel or something like that so i haven't used fucking calamine lotion since i was in fourth grade thank you when i had the chicken pox and i wasn't even sure what calamine lotion was <laughs> i actually googled that because i was like what is calamine lotion that's so weird what is this stuff that they slathered us in as children yeah zinc oxide or something like that it's like some kind of like mineral situation man but i have been covered in calamine lotion and i'm just itching all night long no. like just all throughout the night itching my legs my mom, I mean, this is truly like fourth grade shit. My mom, who I'm staying at my parents' house, of course, and my mom comes in and is like, stop itching. <laughs> so literally, I'm having the fourth grade chicken pox moment. She's monitoring this shit. Like, stop itching, you're going to get scars. Yeah. No, I'm truly, and it feels crazy because I'm just like, I can't stop itching. Uh, no amount of like antihistamine is helping. You oh. know, I've been trying oatmeal you know hydrocortisone calamine lotion i bought Damn. this stuff i found it at walmart I'm, I'm i'm just saying that i found it at walmart that's not an indictment of it but it's for chiggers i don't know if you've heard about chiggers oh yeah i've heard of, they're vicious i i feel like the term is really strange but it's chigger medicine and it's called chigger x <laughs> no it's not <laughs> And it reminds me of Blue Star ointment. Do you remember like oh, in the man. 80s? They used to advertise that at the yep. end of like Sally Jesse Raphael, like <laughs> jock itch, ringworm, psoriasis. Like, no, it looks like that kind of stuff. And it's very strange. It smells terrible. But like I'm using literally anything. I'm like, first of all, sugar sounds so mildly racist to me. Yes, me too. Like, I know it's not, but in my head, I'm like, mm, 
<laughs> what they saying about that ointment? Who, oh, who owns that ointment? <laughs> I can't be on board with the term chigger. I have to say this. I, I can't do it. I can't do it. Right. But I'm like, can we call it something else? This is so fucking weird. Look, if we can come up with no seum, can we come up with bite assum or something like that? <laughs> we gotta, you gotta start phasing out. Chigger. Thank you. I can't do it. But also, I feel like you're at the point where do we need to like bring in some sage and some crystals? Do we need to bring in some like some alkaline water like what do we need to get to woo -woo this shit out is there some kind of like clay or like some kind of (laughs) hidden secret (laughs) like local clay pit that you have to go and like swab yeah i need an herb or something like this is so so deeply annoying and yeah itchy and According to Alexis, who, by the way, literally, we we came to the recording tonight and she was like, oh, I've had them. They're called sand flies. I had them for like three weeks and I was like screaming. Three months. Three oh, months. Oh, sorry. Three months. OK, great. <laughs> Sounds good. Three months. Three months. <laughs> three months. And she thought her legs were just going to be like that forever. Three months. OK, I literally thought she said three weeks. And so now I'm sweating over these bumps. I'm sweating. <laughs> I don't know if I can do three months. No, you it's can't. It's only been a week. It's only been like eight days, a week and a half, no. maybe. After, put it this way, after two months, I'm coming down to Atlanta with like one of those Metropolis body armor suits, like the kind <laughs> that little Nas X wore to the Met Gala, and we're just going to cover that shit up. <laughs> you cannot live that way. You're half, you'll be half metal from now on if that's the case. You cannot live with that for months. Yes, put me in a half sarcophagus. I can't take it. Like it's too weird and itchy, and the bumps look no. bad. Like, you know, whatever. Like I got skin issues like everybody else does, and I'm not like super, you know, bummed out about it. I mean, it is what it is. Bodies are gross. But at the same time, I'm like, this looks shitty. Like, I don't know. <laughs> Even for me. Like, I'm like, I'm in Florida wearing fucking sweatpants and it's 96 degrees outside. And I'm like, because I got these damn no seams bite my no. ass. I absolutely hate it. I mean, I've been getting bit up up here this summer. Yeah. Out in these woods. I bet. And my legs look like like my legs are already pale. You know, like I don't go outside in the sun actively. So my legs are already pale. And when I get a bug bite or something, even if I don't itch it, even if I leave it alone, it always leaves like a mark, like a very dull, dark mark. Yeah. So my legs just look like super freckled and fucked the fuck up. And I'm like, well, I don't know what to do because there's bugs fucking everywhere here. There's no amount of I could cover. I could wear a thermocell necklace and still get bit up. The minute I go outside. Yeah. Do you have a lot of ticks up there where you live? Yeah. Yeah. You've seen that family of deer that parties in my goddamn yard. That's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking. I was like, there's deer, deer ticks. Is that what they're called? Maybe they're called something different. Yeah, there's ticks everywhere. And so I'm always checking for ticks, even if I just go out and get the mail. Yeah. But my legs look disgusting like they just look so horrible and i got one of these like um i've got this hammam scrub mitt that i usually like mm-hmm. and i it's like i i got my i got my first hammam scrub when i went to montreal for the first time i stayed at this hotel that offered it and i was like what's that and they're like we're gonna put you in a room full of steam scrub you down with some soap and then take this mitt 
and just like scrub all the dead skin off your body like and it looks like eraser shavings wow and i was like yeah let's do it because i got years worth of exfoliation to to do like i have not been paying attention to it at all <laughs> and it felt like start taking off layers let's go and it felt great so i got one of those mitts for myself for home and i keep thinking that maybe part of the reason my legs look so gross is for those months the last few months where i did not have hot water <sighs> And bathing was sporadic, so I wasn't rubbing my legs down on a regular basis. Sure. So I've just got these, like, like dead skin. This is a fucking fascinatingly beautiful podcast at this point. You're like, I got I got no seum bites, and I'm like, I have layers of skin that I need to slough off of my gross body. But it's gross. <laughs> it's my, I, I get sad when I look at my legs. I got sad legs. Uh, well, listen, I mean, this is also beyond... The just general horror that is my aging body, right? Like, I was like, oh, besides the varicose veins and the weird, like, cuts that don't heal, now I have yes. half of a body's worth of chicken pox-ish looking <laughs> shit down there. And then on top of that, this is this is stupid of me. I can't even believe that I'm about to say this. But I decided to also shave girl like so like the other day i was like i have to shave i don't care if i've got these bumps it was literally like i mean we're gonna talk about smoking the bandit today and like that shit was like a fucking bandit run <laughs> through the woods like i was like cutting myself going over these bites these no bites and then so now i have cuts from shaving mixed with these stupid bug bites and it's a no. mess. Like, it's a fucking disaster you down there. You gotta put that razor in a bowl of water and throw that shit in the <laughs> freezer until this ordeal is over. I must, because it is, it's not great right now for me on the lower half of my body. I'm just saying it. So, But you're right. The middle-aged body is so, I used to think it was so weird when my grandma would get, like, there, I remember one very vivid event where she bumped her shin on the coffee table. And it gave her a little cut mm -hmm. and she was so mad at herself. And I'm like, what's going on? She's like that. Is, you have no idea that's going to scar. And I'm like, uh, yeah. calm down. I'm like, I'm 16. I got this. My body <laughs> bounces back like a rubber band. I'm sure it's genetic. You'll be fine. Right. She still has that fucking scar. Like it's scarred her leg. Oh, my God. Like the middle aged body is not interested in like helping you heal naturally anymore. They're like, I'm sorry. We're looking up up top and we see menopause coming. <laughs> Why are we putting in the effort <laughs> like on this leg? Dude, I mean, I, I pretty much like we've talked about before on this podcast, like we're ready. It's coming whether or not we want it to or not. So fuck it. But I got to tell you, being ravaged by fucking weird Florida sand no. fleas is <laughs> something I never thought. Like I was simply just afraid of COVID. Now yeah. I'm like, oh, now I can't even go outside to avoid COVID because I might get bit by no seums, which I fucking just learned about. So this is the problem. While COVID was raging, and we were all inside. Nature carried on. Yes. And nature was like, we're going to procreate. We're going to be ready for these motherfuckers when they come back out of these houses and we're, we don't get them. Well, and I want to know about something for you, because I know that. I mean, the two of us are like paranoid as fuck about COVID. And I know that you have traditionally yeah. been very, very, very safe, but you did venture out. I ventured out after what I can only describe as a pivotal therapeutic event. Ooh. Because I was saying to my therapist, 
that I'm starting to feel really sanctimonious about not going out because everyone's kind of carrying on and getting back to normal. And I'm like, don't talk to me. I'm still quarantining. But I'm also feeling super depressed, like low. I feel so low yeah, because I don't hang out with anyone. I don't see anyone. And then it's I'm not someone who's ever really experienced FOMO in my life. Like, I don't fear missing out on shit. I live to cancel. I live to stay at home and go to bed at eight o'clock. Like, that's my jam. (laughs) But I sincerely have been feeling like, wow, everyone else feels okay, like seeing their friends and getting coffee. And I don't. (laughs) And it's starting to really make me feel low. And so I'm like, look, I got to dip a toe back in. Like, I've got to try um, because I can see now that this is not something I've, I guess I've been thinking about it as let's live through it and then get back to seeing each other. And now I've had to come to a point where I'm like, oh, I just have to figure out how to adapt and live with it. Yeah, because it's not going anywhere. America is 50 countries and they all have different ideas about what they should be doing with this shit. So if I want to do anything I have to start to adapt. And um, so I went right into New York City. (laughs) (laughs) Now, how how far away is New York City from where you are, roughly? About an hour and a half, hour and 15 minutes away. Um, So I kind of, I tried to do it the best way I knew how. So usually I would take public transportation. Like I take the bus, I take the train. um, But I did not want to be sitting inside with people for that long, even though it would probably be okay. But I was like, ah, let's just not risk it. Um, and then going through all the train stations and like the Port Authority and Penn Station, like you can keep it right now. I don't want to go <laughs> go in either if I don't have yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. So I drove myself into the city. And the first shock of that is that it now cost 16 goddamn dollars to get through the Lincoln Tunnel. Shit. I think the last time I drove through the Lincoln Tunnel, it was like four dollars wow. or something <laughs> like 1990. It was ridiculously expensive <laughs> in a to drive through the Lincoln Tunnel. But I did. I drove in and I parked at a garage and I had a friend, a friend who's a comedian, and it was the opening night of his new show. And the reason I felt comfortable going is that they required proof of vaccination at the door mm-hmm. and you had to keep your mask on the entire time. So they're like, no food, no drink. Mask stays on that face, covering the nose and the mouth. Like they made sure the, that your mask was on properly. Mm-hmm. And then because it was, you know, it was a kind of a smallish theater. And then, you know, we just kind of sat in there and watched the show. And I felt OK with that. And I invited a friend who I haven't seen in two years um, and she came in from Brooklyn and we just went and saw this show. It was kind of the weirdest possible way to like reenter society. But my friend is a pretty well-known comedian, like stand up writer. And so I'm sitting in an audience with like Stephen Colbert is in front of me and Catherine Keener is next to me and David Letterman's across the aisle and Chris Rock just walked in. And I was like, I do not want to give or get COVID from any of these motherfuckers. <laughs> if Stephen Colbert gave you COVID, oh, would never hear the end of it. We would be banging his door down. Never hear the end of it. This whole network is now owned by Stephen Colbert and he just has to give us everyone at exactly right a bag of cash because he gave us, he gave me COVID. But I'm sitting there and I'm like, David Letterman, there's no way a mask is covering that beard. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no way. So I'm like, if he gives me COVID, if Letterman gives me COVID, how much am I allowed to pop off? Because I will. 
happens, I will. But it, it was it was a nice experience. Everyone kept their shit together. It was very. I just felt safe. I felt okay. And then after the show, I didn't hang out. I did not go to the after party for several reasons. One being, I was dressed like a farmer because I haven't left my fucking house in two years. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't have. I didn't come here with like an opening night outfit. I came here in jeans and a t-shirt. I'm Yo, going but that's home. the look, though. That's the thing is that you that the spin is that everybody should know that the farmer look is in like (laughs) we're all wearing our fucking crocs and our baggy overalls it's no big deal that's the move it's the move it's hot i can't do it i'm already tired so i was like you know i just drove i drove my friend home to brooklyn and and then i just you know got back on the the throughway and came back and it was all in all like a five six hour round trip um but i felt Okay. Yeah. I felt like, okay, there are things I can do to keep myself a little bit safe to still feel I'm still wearing that mask. You're not yeah. getting that mask off my face probably ever again in public. Yeah. Not in a big city. Um, but I felt okay. And I'm like, all right, now I can kind of stop being such a sanctimonious prick about everyone else hanging out <laughs> because I just tried it. Do you feel like this is something you could do again or do more often? Cause yeah. You know. Yeah. Like I have to go into the city to get my bottom braces off. Um, and I feel like I can do that. Like it's to me, it's still safer than hopping on a plane and going back to LA, which I did for the top braces. And it didn't feel great to like have to stay in a hotel and just take so many precautions. But yeah, I feel like I could at least start opening up enough to do stuff like this. I can go to places where I know you must be vaccinated and you still have to wear a mask. Like that kind of double protection feels okay for me right now. Yeah. I gotta say, I haven't been back to a show. Like that is one thing where I've been kind of a little on the fence about is going back to like small venues and definitely concerts. Like I'm like, Oh my gosh, I don't even know when I'm going to be able to do that for myself, of course. But like, yeah, I'm so I'm just I'm proud of you, though. I mean, this sounds like you had it like the best possible experience, you know, that you could have. It was cool. It was cool. And I think I mean, the next concert I go to is going to be the one held at my funeral. (laughs) Let's be real. (laughs) Do you want to talk about movies? Uh, okay. (laughs) great i guess you're in luck since we have to (laughs) okay you want to talk about this theme this week because i feel like it's a good one it's a good one it is and i want to say i was convinced that nobody was going to get it and i remember you did bet me that yeah no one would or that somebody would or wait what was the bet i don't even remember the bet but um i think it was one american dollar yes that's all i recall (laughs) was that i was going to either not get or get a dollar um but what is the theme this week our theme this week is movies that remind us of home Woo! that's why i felt like it would be hard to get because they're not necessarily about the places we were born they're not necessarily about you know they're just places we've lived yeah and movies that remind us of them yeah, because home can mean so much, as we all know. Um, but I think that when we were like, we had talked about doing this theme for a while and then finally was like, you know what? It's time. It's time yeah. for us to come home. And um, I like our choices. They're super different, yeah. but I also like it for that reason. I do, too. And I think I mean, look, I was I'm always on the verge of picking Chud again. <laughs> 
for a movie that are like, what reminds me the most of home? Being gross. A toilet. <laughs> a toilet. <laughs> so I think we did very well with our picks considering where it could have gone. Agreed. But also I will say, and I don't know, I don't know if this, if this comes up organically, so be it. But I, I think that there are some similarities, even despite their vast differences. There's some Ooh. common theme or themes. I, think, I can think of one. I can, yeah, I definitely want to hear your thoughts on that for sure. Because I, I I was thinking about that when I was watching both of the movies, that there's one particular strain that I think goes through both in a very interesting way, which is why we pick these themes to begin with. Yes. To try to you know put these movies together in an interesting way. Um, but I also think it's it probably I, do, I don't know if we even discussed this, but I think we just kind of organically felt like it was time to do this theme because we have both just moved home. Yes. Yes. And that is something that I'm still dealing with on a regular basis. <laughs> I I can tell you that there was a moment last week um, where I think because I've been dealing so much with like the haunted house that I live in, that I haven't had time to deal with the town. Mm. And there was a point where I was driving home and pulp came on the playlist and I was driving down the street. I used to drive down to pick up my friend from high school before we would ditch like we would go. I'd pick her up. And then we would just drive to Friendly's and have breakfast, go back to her house and sleep and then go go for like the last two periods of the day. Right. And it's our senior year. So this song came on on the street that I was on and it hit me like a ton of bricks that like I live in my hometown. Yeah. I don't know why it was so vivid because I've been here for months now, but it was so vivid in that moment. And so I think that that's there's something just happening with both of us where I think being back in the places that, you know, we were raised or at least came of age that felt right for this theme uh, yeah i totally totally agree and honestly for this yeah this this week was kind of interesting because to be quite honest with you like it really hasn't even sunk in a hundred percent that i'm back in georgia like i kind of even don't remember how i got here like it just happened and then when i watched the movie that i'm going to talk about today i was like oh yeah like now I kind of understand the appeal. Like, yeah. I'm like, I get it. Like, so it was weird. I mean, I, I don't want to say that was, I, I watched my movie and then all of a sudden everything clicked into place, but it was, right. it was definitely help. It would definitely help me kind of readjust being back. I will say. Yeah. So. Well, uh, you're first, so we can Ooh. get right into it. I just want to say for the record that the last time I saw this movie before rewatching it, like for the, for this episode was with you. Yep. At the new Beverly at that fucked up, crazy screening that we saw with this movie and semi tough. Yeah. And this movie played first and I had never actually seen my movie with a, with an audience before. And I, I almost cried. I almost cried <laughs> because it was so fun. It I could so still to this day, I hear you laughing and screaming at every amazing part. <laughs> like I was just like, this is the best screening ever. Like this is why it's important to watch movies in a movie theater with a bunch of people. Right. Exactly. Even if you have to sit on their lap, it's yes. important. <laughs> so, if you listen to our last bonus episode, you'll understand <laughs> where that comes from. <laughs> so <laughs> my movie for the theme of movies that remind us of home is a movie from 1977. 
It was directed by Hal Needham, and it's called Smokey and the Bandit. At last, a warm, sensitive, touching story about the close personal relationship between a man and a woman. Between a trucker and his dog. Fred, I'm so damn tired of picking you up. I got Fred! Between a father no way. and his son. No way that you could come from my loins. And how they all took to the road one day for a quiet little drive in the country. I gotta say, just right off the top, I love a movie where the songs in the movie explain what's going on in the movie. A hundred <laughs> fucking percent. Like... I have a lot to say. Okay, first of all, let me just tell you right now. I have so much to say about this movie that it is going to take a lot of effort for me <laughs> to even attempt to keep it under the runtime of this fucking podcast. Because I say go for it. And if we give him a supersized episode because we have to, that's what ha- I have a Diet Coke on the ready. But I'm telling you, I could go at least like a couple hours, if not oh, yeah. an entire weekend. OK, like easily. I could lock people into a hotel conference room to talk about Smokey <laughs> and the Bandit. Like Jill Clayburgh would be sweating and crying. That's how much I fucking love this movie. That's how we're going to see this on our next screening. Is <laughs> us locking people into a conference room and being like, we're playing Smokey and the Bandit for 60 hours straight. Bye. Bye. <laughs> so, okay, obviously I just brought up semi-tough if you haven't heard that episode a couple episodes ago. Because guess what, folks? We have another Burt Reynolds movie on the podcast. And again, I must rein in my thoughts about Burt Reynolds because I'm obsessed with him. Like as a person who <laughs> essentially lived in the South my entire life, I left for a while. And now I'm back. Like, I'm obsessed with Burt Reynolds. I look, stranger things have happened. <laughs> the man was iconic for a reason. He was truly iconic. And, le- and I'll just say this, like, Smokey and the Bandit, I would argue, is his true euphoric Southern masterpiece. I could not agree more. It is a euphoric Southern masterpiece. Plain and simple. He's never been more charming. Ugh. He's never been more hilarious and relaxed. Yes. It's one of the funnest movies I've ever seen in my whole life. It puts me in the greatest mood. Yep. Um, and most of it was shot and takes place in Georgia, which is the state that I'm from. Yep. And it was shot in parts of the county that I live in, DeKalb County. It was shot in Henry County, Clayton Ugh. and, and uh, DeKalb. Even though I think there was some like North Georgia stuff, I'm not really sure, but it, it was it was shot in the county that I live in. I mean, come on, man, you could not get closer. Yes, and also there's like a lot of kind of old Atlanta stuff too, like the Lakewood Fairgrounds and the uh, there's this restaurant called the Old Hickory House, which is basically where it's the restaurant that Jackie Gleason gets his Diablo sandwich. But okay, that whole scene <laughs> is like we're well, gonna talk about it. That's four hours for me. <laughs> I mean, I would watch a documentary simply of B-roll from that Diablo sandwich scene, I must say. Absolutely. A full doc. A yeah. full doc. But there was an old Hickory house. The one that, that was in the movie was, I think, south of Atlanta. But um, there was a, a old Hickory house by my old work. So I remember Man. the restaurant. I don't know. I think it's actually still there. But I'll just tell you, like, it, like Smoking the Bandit, when it came out in 1977... 
it, when it first came out, they they released it like Radio City Music Hall or something, and like nobody saw it. Like everybody was like, "This is a weird fucking movie." Until they started playing it in the South, and wouldn't you know, is a huge smash. It became like the second highest grossing movie of 1977 behind Star Wars. I mean, pretty incredible. And damn. Yeah, pretty, pretty amazing if you think about it. And make no mistake, Burt Reynolds was already super fucking famous outside of the South by the time this movie came around. Like he was a star. But I will say that I think that Burt Reynolds is beloved by Southern people. And I think it's because he made a lot of movies in the South and a lot of the movies stories took place in the South. I mean, he made like white lightning and the longest yard and deliverance. I mean, Mm -hmm. he was kind of like always in Georgia and Florida and he lived a lot of his early life in Florida. He went to FSU. He was a football player. Um, His dad was a cop in Florida. And (laughs) I think later on when he moved back and lived there, he opened a lot of weird restaurants in Florida and Georgia, like (laughs) dinner theaters and shit. And he died there. So it's like, he was just always like, linked to the south and i think that's why people down here love him so much and he does it in a way where i know we we talked about this a lot during the deliverance episode but he's never pandering to the south in his films and he's never making fun of a stereotype or kind of like he's just being a cool dude in that area yeah and also too i mean I've, i've heard interviews with him where he's talked about the south and he said look there's a lot of stuff down here that does embarrass me about the south like but there's also a lot of stuff to be proud of, too. So it's kind of like a mix. He knows it's a mixed bag. He's not like completely one way or the other about it. But I think that his love for it is like very apparent. And I think that that's like, you know, makes makes other people feel real nice. So exactly. In case you have not seen Smoking the Bandit, I'm going to give you a one sentence synopsis of this movie. OK, good luck. All right. <laughs> a couple of rich guys who want a rich guy, bratty errand, done in an impossible amount of time, hire Burt Reynolds and Jerry Reed to go on a fun-ass road trip to sneak Coors beer into Georgia, all while evading a bumbling Southern cop and his knucklehead son. Okay, that is beautiful. <laughs> I want that stitched on a pillow. <laughs> I had to do it justice. So I was like, let me really hack away at this. Um, Perfect. So let me, let me actually, cause I actually, when I first saw this movie, I was young, had no idea about beer, obviously. Right. But I will say this now in case people don't know the entire premise of this movie basically rests on this idea that you weren't able to get coors in the South. <laughs> In the 70s. Okay. Liquid gold. (laughs) (laughs) Now, yes, that's a weird concept for an entire film. But in the 1970s, Coors was bottled in Colorado and pretty much was only sold right outside of Colorado. Right. Right. It was kind of like a regional beer. Of course, now it's like super fucking famous. You can get it like every gas station in the world. But back then it was hard to get. And I'm not like a huge beer fan. Or anything. I guess there is something about wanting like a regional beer when you can't have it. Like, you know, like, I'm like, some, I understand people want Lone Star beer when they're not in Texas or whatever. 
Um, but ultimately, it's kind of a crazy premise because, of course, now with our modern minds, we're like, I can't believe you just can't, like, get somebody to bring it to your house, like, whenever you want. Yeah. But it was back then, it was really hard to get. And honestly, I'm not even going to judge people who have passions for beer because when it comes down to it, I think I have driven Aesop hand soap across state lines. So like, ah! I can't, I can't talk. Right. You for sure have several times. <laughs> well, like, what if they don't have one there? <laughs> they don't have one in Atlanta. We are a modern city, but we're not that modern people. Just, just put it out there. But I also want to talk about Hal Needham a little bit too, because he was the director of smoking the bandit. And effectively he was this Hollywood stuntman who was Burt Reynolds, longtime stunt double. And, they eventually, I mean, they worked together so much. He eventually lived in Burt Reynolds's house and they, be, so they were like roommates for like a decade and best friends. And, you know, I I've read that they were kind of the, um, they were kind of the inspiration for the Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt characters. And mm-hmm. once upon a time in Hollywood, just sort of that, like, you know, stunt double and his actor best friend hang. Right. Right. But Hal Needham actually wrote Smokey and the Bandit sort of as he wrote it initially, I think, as a B movie. Like, I don't think he really had a lot of expectations for it. And at first it was actually shopped to American International Pictures, which, of course, is, you know, Roger Corman's production company. But it wasn't until Burt stepped in, really, as his best friend and was like, yo, I want to star in this movie for you, (laughs) that it just opened up a whole new level of possibilities. Right. Um. And personally, I just have to say, like having seen it many times, I think it's very obvious that a stuntman directed it because, yeah, I mean, this is just besides the action sequences, of course, but there is this kind of like outlaw feel to it. And a lot, there's a lot of like improvisation in the movie with the actors, which I think kind of gives it this like rough around the edges, but it's ultimately like a real easy, fun, buoyant type of movie, right? Mm -hmm. Just really really fun to watch. So let me get into the beats of this movie just a little bit. So like the movie starts with these two rich guys, like I alluded to their names are big and little Enos Burdett, big Enos, little Enos. I mean, that's fucking crazy. Right. And they're played by Pat McCormick and Paul Williams. It has to be said. And, um, Essentially, at the beginning of the movie, they're tr- they've been trying to get somebody to drive a truck full of Coors beer to Atlanta for this car race called the Southern Classic, which they're trying to win. And they feel like that's an inevitable fact. And they're like, I want to celebrate. I want to drink Coors during the celebration. And they initially had sent this guy in there and he got busted by the cops for bootlegging. Um, so, of course, they had to go find the only guy able and crazy enough to actually do it. <laughs> and, of course, it's Bo Darville, otherwise known as the bandit, played by Burt Reynolds. All right. And they offer him like a shit ton of money and a brand new Trans Am to drive. If he and his friend, Cletus Snow, a.k.a. the snowman, a.k.a. Jerry Reed can deliver this truckload of Coors within 28 hours. Okay. And they're going from, from Georgia to Texas? Yeah, Texarkana. Yeah. Which is, okay, I'm, I'm going to say this right now. I have actually done the Google Maps uh, research on this. <gasps> now, according to what I've seen, it would only take around 20 hours to drive from... Atlanta to Texarkana and back. 
Now that is. But does that include a heist? Doesn't include a heist. Duh. It doesn't include like getting your dog out of the river and shit like that. But, you know, to me, when I kind of did the math, I was kind of like, oh, okay. well, man, they got a lot of time. They could have really, really fucked around if they really wanted to. But in the movie, it's 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 a it's not a lot of time. It's a short time to get there as Jerry Reed sings in the song that Daniel loves. So the plan is that Snowman's going to drive his big rig while the bandit drives the Trans Am to block him, which basically just call attention away from this giant 18 wheeler that's carrying illegal beer. OK, now I got to tell you, if you think the bandit is great, the Snowman is simply uh, a legend. <laughs> Truly a legend because the bandits and this is, I think this sticks in line with our MO in general, like the bandits basically doing cartwheels in his Trans Am down the road. And we're only paying attention to the cool guy with his dog in the truck. Of course. (laughs) Like we don't want the muscles. We don't want (laughs) the flash. We want a, a mopey dog and a cool dude. With a CB radio. I mean, it's like, I don't know how the hell they found a guy that was slightly more charming than Burt Reynolds to play his sidekick, but fuck, fuck they did. I mean, for real, I, the, the best part is even really at the very beginning during the setup where the snowman is getting roped into this job, by the way, he's like, I'm sleeping. I don't want to <laughs> even do this shit. The bandit shows up to his house where his wife and kids are like running around screaming. One of his kids kicks bandit in the balls. Like it's just <laughs> a mess. And like band is like, yo, we got a job to do. It's going to pay $80,000. And snowman is like, okay, good buddy. Well, I got to bring my dog, my old <laughs> hound dog, Fred, which another legend. <laughs> Their relationship, their human dog friendship in this movie is so pure. It makes me want to cry. I simply love Fred and Snowman together. Just a man saying to another adult man, can you get a cheeseburger for my dog? (laughs) There's something so beautiful about that. And just the way he he talks to him like he's talking to a partner. I love it. Love it, love it, it's love it. It's beautiful. It's so beautiful. And I guess, you know, I have to say, too, I mean, Jerry Reed, I mean, he was famous before this movie, too. He was a country singer. A lot yep. of people probably know that. And as Danielle mentioned, he sings the theme song to Smoking the Bandit, which is called Eastbound and Down. You, th- I think you probably know what it is by now. And it plays all throughout the movie. And yep. it's literally telling you what the movie's about. Like, it's <laughs> always telling you what the movie's about. And... It is, I think, absolutely crucial for my love of this movie that this song is playing. It's so good. Completely. Because it keeps the pace of the movie up. It lets you pay attention to the kind of absurdity and the fun that's happening without getting off track of like, where are we? Where are we in the story? Because the song is going to tell you here's where we are in the story. Exactly. It's like they're going to do what they say can't be done. And it's and you're going to be remembering that every time they fucking do literally anything. It's fucking amazing. And this is a song that gave us the the title of another incredible Southern. I know. Southern TV show Eastbound and Down. Exactly. I mean, it's like greatness brings greatness. You know what I mean? <laughs> and another fucking great thing about this film, too, is that 
it capitalized on <laughs> the CB radio craze of the 70s, which, oh. okay, to some of you younger listeners, we might as well be talking about hieroglyphics or some shit, right? Yeah. But it's one of the best parts of this movie, hands fucking down. I have to, I just have to mention my late uncle was a truck driver. And when I was a kid, I was obsessed with his CB radio and also his police scanner. Cause I was like, wow, you can hear beeps when fucking police officers are crisp. I was like, this is incredible. I had no idea this technology could even exist. And the best part of the, the movie is the idea that there's all this CB lingo, which yes. is so fucking fun. And if you don't know this already, you probably should know this just in general, but a cop is called a bear or a smoky, which is obviously where the fucking title of the movie comes from. But it's it's so fun. Like and I'll get into it more too later uh talking about the film, but it's just the interplay between the bandit and snowman like on their cb radios is mm-hmm. mwah, fantastic it is the best and it is so what i love about that the cb radio the inclusion of cb radio in this film too is that you get to see how every single person who's using the cb radio has their own personality yes so like you've got the grave digger and you've got this li- and there's women and there's just like everyone has they're bringing a personality to the fold and it's so fun and i will forever more Call truck stops the choke and puke. The choke and puke, yeah. <laughs> so I will say, like, now as the movie has gone on, so they've done the job, the band and snowman actually get to Texas relatively pain free. There's not really <laughs> a lot going on, right? They pick up the beer, but it's the way back where things get a little screwy. And first, as there always is, as you know, there's always a woman in a wedding dress just standing in the middle of the road. That is one of the best character entrances on film. The greatest. Certainly the greatest. Um, The woman is Sally Field, and she has just run away from her own fucking wedding where she was supposed to marry this man named Junior, who was played by Mike Henry. And she literally just is in the middle of the road jumps into the Trans Am that the bandit is driving and it's just like changed out of her wedding dress and it's like, yep, I'm here. Let's just keep rolling. She's just joining the fun. <laughs> just so desperate to get away from this knucklehead. <laughs> she will launch herself into a Trans Am. Has no idea who the fuck this guy is. I mean, he's going like 110 miles an hour. <laughs> I'm surprised that he didn't kill her. But yeah, she's just like along for the ride. And Sally Field in this movie could not be cuter. I mean, she's oh. just she's christened the frog. She gets her own handle and it's so cute. She's just such a wonderful addition to this like little crew that they've established. Right. She's so funny. She's so funny in this movie. Oh, my God. So I'll just tell you right now. It turns out that her husband that she just left at the altar is the son of a police officer. His dad is the big sheriff in town, a man named Buford T. Justice. Which he will not let you forget. He will not. He says his name every five minutes. Much like the theme song, he'll tell you every other scene about who he is, Buford T. Justice of Texas. And I'm, I'm convinced that this movie probably wouldn't work as well if Jackie Gleason had not been cast as Sheriff Buford T. Justice, because he is so great. Completely. 
And I got to say, as a child, this didn't come through. But no one else can play someone who is so on the verge of a heart attack (laughs) throughout the entire (laughs) filming. Okay, this guy is just a real shit eating Southern sheriff. (laughs) Just how we like him. With his like tiny painted on mustache, he's sweating and he's eating nasty ass sandwiches, smoking cigarettes. And like Danielle said, every time he talks, he's having like a million fucking heart attacks. (laughs) And in the movie, it's like his personal mission to stop the Sally Field character because she stood his son up at the altar and he he basically calls her a communist for doing that. (laughs) But then actually... When he realizes that she's in the car with the legendary bandit, he is like, oh, fuck. Like, this is this is literally my life's passion to stop these two people. Two for one. And (laughs) I mean, honestly, like, I know I've just talked for a while about this movie. I don't really have to make the case for this movie much because it's like we all agree that old car chase movies from the 70s with like big muscle cars are so fucking fun. Completely. And. I mean, there's this whole scene where, you know, basically Sally Field's character and Bandit jump the bridge. It's like the the big bridge jumping scene. And her excitement after they clear that fucking bridge is truly all of us when we're watching Smoking the Bandit. We're like, yeah, we want to jump a house. We want to do we want to see more. I mean, there's just so much to love about this movie already. I mean, you know, besides like the interplay between. The bandit snowman on the CBs, and we love the lingo, and we love Buford railing on his son for truly being the dumbest person to ever live. <laughs> the way that they start this journey, this is also something that was hilarious to me as a kid and truly has not waned at all as an adult. The way this car starts in the beginning of the film and the way that Buford's car looks at the end of the film is its own comedy beat. Oh, my God. It's so good. And I think I really think about it. And I'm like, you know, I watched this movie on TV a lot when I was a little kid. And it's where I learned. I learned a lot. I learned the the trucker thing where you pull your your fist down to get them to honk their horn. I learned that from this movie. I think we all did. Of course. It was like there was so much to it, like the culture of truckers and the CBs and all that stuff that just informed a lot of us when we saw this movie as kids. But the thing is about Smoking the Bandit, if I'm being truly honest, the happiness that I feel whenever I see this movie comes from the fact that people are banding together to outsmart cops. Yeah, it's everyone against the man. Everybody wants the bandit and snowman to win. Like truly every person of all it's like all races, ages and genders from like young guys to like sweet old grannies. (laughs) And they figure out what's going on they get on their cb radios to let bandit and snowman know that they've got their backs and it is simply incredible it's just the most heartwarming thing in the world yes i mean there is a fucking asian guy laughing while driving his car trailer through buford t justice's door okay Another legend. True. <laughs> a true coalition of diversity against truly the cops. Okay. Like the guys that are leading a funeral procession get on their CBs and they're like, we got you banded. Here's like 40 cars driving exactly. 10 miles an hour in front of this <laughs> asshole sheriff. Like they're like, we got you. 
It is truly heartwarming. I think part of the reason I continue to love this movie is even now when I watch it, I get those feelings that I had as a little kid, which is being excited to watch someone win against the man. Yes. Like before I even knew what the man was, I was excited to see the man torn down. Yes. And the Southern man, which, yes, you know, Southern cops, they were just incredibly notorious, but like. You got this guy, Buford T. Justice of Texas, talking about how Sally Field is a communist because she left his son at the altar is sort of like, okay, so now we know what we're dealing with. Therefore, everybody get together and make sure these guys don't win. And I simply love this movie for that. But to sum this up, I mean, I could really be here all day talking about Smoking the Bandit and why it's so wonderful. But there's this like joke that people from the South think that Smokey and the Bandit is a documentary. (laughs) (laughs) And I always think that's so funny because I'm like, yeah, that is like the funniest thing in the world. But it's like, it's just a movie that makes me so insanely happy every time I watch it. It reminds me, honestly, that the South can be a very like friendly, low-key, funny, hangout kind of place and it kind of makes me love living here again like it just really did sort of remind me of like how fun the south is and i'm just it reminds me of home so that's why i picked it for our theme oh yeah i absolutely love i love it i'm so glad we got to watch this again yeah because when we saw this at the new bev like much like yourself i had never seen it in an audience oh my gosh and i did not realize how much people love this movie oh yeah it is like a beloved classic. Burt Reynolds is so in, in, in a history, in a career of charming movies, he is never funnier and more charming than he is in this movie. Yeah. And it just like absolutely refuses to take itself seriously. Like it is just pure fucking fun. And I love that. My movie is a departure from fun. <laughs> We're going 180 as hard. We're making that, that curve as hard as possible. Because my film, my pick for our theme of movies that remind us of home was released in 2002. It was directed by Christopher Nolan. It was written by Hilary Seitz, and it's called Insomnia. What Detective Dormer doesn't know is that murder is only part of the plan. Dormer. Killing changes you. It's like awareness. Who am I speaking to? Oh, my God. I do. This has been an underrated film in most people's lives, but it was heavy on my radar because I moved to Alaska in 2002. So when this movie was released, I was on my road trip. I drove from New York City to Alaska. I was on the road for like two and a half months, and I just kind of, you know, it was 2002. I just I zigzagged across the country. I stopped and saw my friends from the Internet and just went wherever I wanted to go. Um, it was a very free trip that I took. So it came out when I was on that road trip. So I hadn't it took me like a, a year after till I actually saw it. Wow. But it's it resonates with me for several reasons. So. Just to set this up a little bit before I get into like my own experience, this is a film that's based on a movie called Insomnia that was released in 1997 that was directed by Nikolaj Frobenius 
and uh, written by Nikolaj Frobenius and Eric Skjoldbjerg. Girl, I tried it. Look, you, I applaud. I applaud. Could have never done any better than that. So my apologies to the Skjoldbjerg family. It's got that letter that's the A and the E combined. Like, I'm trying it. Yeah. I might as well be speaking to like someone on Asgard. Like, I can't. <laughs> Oh my God, I've tried it. But <laughs> this movie premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival. And this was Christopher Nolan's first movie after Memento, which was like his smash hit entry into the universe of prolific and respected filmmakers. And so it was interesting because I think that the choice to do this kind of after that big of a film, it was more about cementing his his look or his you know kind of his approach to film than it was creating just like another brain bending mystery sure um so i like that he kind of he went down this road and it was you know this is a swedish film that was that was not really on the radar here so to remake it five years later uh, it was still pretty fresh and it stayed pretty true to the story so i will give you the, the one sentence synopsis for this film um which I don't know. I don't know about this one, but I'm going to try it. (laughs) Don't doubt yourself. Two L.A. detectives who are on the verge of being investigated by internal affairs are sent to Alaska to help solve a murder in a room with Nikki Katz's mustache. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) If you were thinking our theme this week was fucking insane mustaches yes <laughs> that was the through line <laughs> this mustache is so distractingly pasted on and it's like gray and he's not great like they gave him some gray and they put this little gray mustache on him and i'm like you can see the lace underneath like you can see the netting holding that thing to his face it is distracting <laughs> <laughs> my synopsis so the film is has a great cast like an incredible cast you've got al pacino playing one of the main investigators uh will dormer um martin donovan is his partner hap you've got hillary swank who's like this like tiny baby hillary swank playing um ellie burr who's like this you know local ambitious cop uh, who's meeting her hero like Al Pacino is her hero right in terms of being a cop and her paper at the police academy was based on one of his most famous cases so it's about this murder that takes place in this very small Alaskan town that's made up called Night Mute which I just love I just love a made up Alaskan name it's not far off from actual Alaskan town names first of all I wondered about that because I was I was actually going to ask you about that I was like is that a real is that a real town No, it is not a real town. And I looked it up because I was really interested in it, um, you know, after watching it again. It was filmed in Alaska and but it was mostly filmed in British Columbia. So the the town itself of Nightmute is actually a town called Squamish in British Columbia. And then all the glacier shots that you see, like they're kind of flying over glaciers from the minute the movie starts. And that's all near Valdez. In Alaska. Mm. Um, And they also filmed a lot in Hyder, Alaska. So the cool thing about Alaska, there are many, many cool things about Alaska. But what I love about this movie right off the bat is you instantly get a feel for how different Alaska is from any other part of the world. It is so unique. 
And it is from town to town, from city to city within Alaska, you're going to get a different vibe. So if you drive down to Homer and you're driving down on the spit, you're going to get more of what you see in this movie, which is like, you know, the fog and the trees and the waterline and the ocean and kind of that fishing lifestyle. And then if you go more inland to Fairbanks, it's like a whole different experience. <laughs> and it's very, you know, the airbase and the, and the college. And it's just every part of Alaska, because Alaska is huge. And I didn't conceive of how big it was until I got there um, because someone told me, and I didn't realize this, of course, but someone told me that Alaska is not only the biggest state, but it stretches from East Coast to West Coast. Wow. If you superimpose a, a map of Alaska over a map of the United States, it fills the United States. <laughs> Yeah. It is a massive, massive place. And so, of course, there's going to be so many different types of ecosystems and ways of living within that. Right. So I loved just from the beginning, they're flying over this glacier and there's nothing, there's no color in the world like glacial blue. Ugh. Like to see it up close and personal is one of the most beautiful experiences I've ever had. And... um yeah, so I, I moved to Alaska on the heels of September 11th. I was living and working in New York City at the time. I was working for the United Nations. And I was looking around and I'm like, there's sharpshooters on the roof. There's anthrax threats. Like the city was just scary to me. Right. And um, I went to visit a friend who had moved there. And I'm like, you know what? I'm doing it. And I sold everything I owned and I bought a car. I bought a Subaru Forester, a little used Subaru Forester, and I took off. I took off with whatever I could fit in that car. Wow, yeah. And when I got there, I felt like, okay, I'm used to living in places where there are not a lot of Black people. There are not a lot of Black people in Alaska. Okay. There were not a lot of Black people in Alaska when I got there, um, to the point where I made a joke when I was leaving Alaska, I also drove out of Alaska. And as I was driving out of the city limits, I saw a car with a black family driving in. And I was like, they got the memo one in one out. Like <laughs> they're just not. Um, however, you can't say the place isn't diverse because there's a huge native population and Inuit population there. Yeah. So it's an interesting place. Like there's all these things just kind of butting up against each other constantly. But the reason I chose this movie and not something about, say, like, you know, New York City or, you know, upstate New York or any other place that I spent a lot of time is because it felt this movie felt like Alaska to me. Right. And it's the only movie I've seen that really has accomplished that. Yeah. Well, you know, also perpetuating a lot of drama, but it feels like Alaska, like that, that the slow, the, there's a slowness to the town that they're in that really telegraphs a lot of peace. And I felt a lot of peace and calm in Alaska. And I kind of turned into a nature girl in the way that I never had before. Like yeah. I was gung-ho city kid and had lived in city, you know, the city for a long time before I moved there and always wanted to, always wanted to live in cities. Yeah. And when I got there, I started, you know, like doing glacier hikes and, <laughs> and like going out on long walks and just being outside felt different. It's the it's the first place where I didn't think the Purple Mountains majesty part of our national anthem was real until I moved to Alaska. Because wow. when the sun sets on like the lupin and the heather in the mountains, it looks 
gorgeous. It's like this gorgeous pinkish purple. It's just, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. And the thing that this movie nails, which is crucial to the to the whole plot, is the fact that it is it is the land of the midnight sun. There is a whole portion of the year where for months the sun is up in the sky. The sun does not set. And then in the winter, there are whole portions of the winter where the sun does not rise. Well, and okay, so this was a huge part of the movie, obviously. And I actually don't understand it in a weird way. And and I hate to admit that, but it's like I the thing about Alaska that is so attractive to me is that i can't get like a sense of what it would be like like i'm yeah i'm certain that it is a type of environment where the natural world plays so much into your everyday living there kind of like Mm -hmm. when you live you know anywhere that has like big weather events or like lots of snow or lots of rain it's kind of like that obviously informs sort of how people live right yes but i can't like i know this happens in like extreme northern places where the sun doesn't go down or doesn't come Mm -hmm. up for and and is that because it's just positioned like in the earth that way or explain it to me basically so so norway like there a lot of the northern places yeah like extremely extreme northern places experience this because it is exactly that it's the way that the earth is revolving around the sun in that moment And, you know, just for that, and it's not all year round and it's not extended. It's like there might be four months or three months where it feels like it's always light out, but the sun does go down a little bit. It just doesn't get like dark. And that's because the way the earth is rotating around the sun at that time of year, you're just never getting that exposure to darkness. Wow. So it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. And, (laughs) And it is also absolutely mind-bendingly psycho like it is i cannot tell you like the the, the, one of the crucial themes in this movie is that al pacino cannot sleep and he is he isn't shutting his eyes from the minute he gets on that plane to go to alaska and there's a little you know there's a little sub subterfuge there a little a little uh thread that runs through that makes you think Maybe he's not able to sleep because he's got other things on his mind, but Alaska just isn't helping with that at all. And it's very true. Like there were times in the summer where, you know, June, July, where it would be one, two o'clock in the morning and look like it was one or two o'clock in the afternoon. Wow. And in order to get some sleep, I would have to tape tinfoil to my windows. Like not even like I couldn't afford blackout curtains at that point. But that was kind of the go-to fix was either you taped tinfoil directly to your window or you taped tinfoil on cardboard boxes and propped them up in the window to get darkness. Wild. So was that like something that you ever got used to or was that just a constant? That would freak me out. And like a way like did it mess with your mood and all that stuff like I I can't imagine. Yeah. Well, one thing I will say first and foremost is if you're someone like me who suffers from clinical depression, don't move to fucking Alaska. (laughs) Right. Like you're fucked twice a year because when in the winter, I'm like, it's so dark. And in the summer, I was like, I feel like I cannot go to sleep because I'm missing out on everything. It's still the middle of the day. Wow. Yeah. 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 I mean, you kind of acclimate enough to get some sleep eventually, but I cannot tell you how many times someone would just call at like two o'clock in the morning and be like, I'm going for a bike ride. Do you want to go? And you're like, yeah, 
I'll meet wow. you for a bike ride because why not? Yeah, like so much of like Al Pacino's like so much of like what he experienced in this film because he wasn't sleeping. I mean, it was just so it made me so freaked out, like watching him not sleep, basically. Yeah, um, because that's not <laughs> a feeling. I hate that feeling, the feeling of not yeah. being able to sleep when I know I'm supposed to be sleeping, especially if like you've got something to do the next day and you're like, I've got to wake up early and I can't go to bed. And I just, oh, my God, that fucked me up, like just the entire yeah. movie, like him not being able to sleep and him putting the alarm clock like in the, you know, bedside table because it's like time is meaningless. I don't know what to think. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Just him seeing those flashes and like it, it really it kind of fucked me up in a in a PTSD sense as well. Sure. Um, like I'm with you on that because it feels to go even a day without sleep makes me feel like I'm about to crumble. And we're watching someone in the film. It's like five or six days that mm. he's not able to sleep. Yeah. Um, and that also becomes a central part of him trying to solve this case. So what I love about the movie, like now that we've kind of gotten the feel for like why I chose this as my movie that reminds me of home. Yeah. Um, what I love about this movie, and there's so much going on here, is that, and this is, it is kind of a spoiler, but it's also crucial to the plot. And it happens early enough that I don't feel like it's a complete spoiler. Al Pacino is, when they arrive in Alaska, Will Dormer and Hap are discussing the fact that they're going to be investigated by internal affairs. And Hap is like, well, they offered me a deal and I'm going to take it. Like, I'm going to get probation and I'm going to tell them whatever they want because I can, I need to be a cop. Like, I need to keep doing this. Right. And Will Dormer, the Pacino character, is fucking pissed because he's like, look, here's what's going to happen if you do that. I'm fucked. And anyone that I ever put in jail, like all my famous cases, everything I ever did, all of those people will get out on a technicality. And Hap is just like, I I. I have to do this. I don't, I don't care. Like I'm doing this. So they've got this internal friction already as they're starting to investigate this case of this 17 year old girl named Kay Connell who was killed and whose body was found like on this trash heap. So they are setting these traps. They're working, they're doing their police work, trying to figure out how to catch the person who might have killed her. And during a pivotal chase scene in the fog on the beach, Near this shack in Alaska, Dormer shoots Hap. He thinks he's shooting at the suspect, but he shoots and kills his partner. Right. So from that moment on, when we finally do meet that killer and we finally do meet that person, they're able to insinuate themselves into the case by kind of being like, I know your secret because there's a bunch of cover up that he does to kind of make it. Um, less obvious and obscure the fact that he killed his partner. Because here's the thing. He's a corrupt cop. He really is. And that's what's fucking fascinating to me about the narrative of this film is that this is someone who, yes, is trying his best. Yes, is struggling in a lot of ways, but is also 100% corrupt in terms of how he decides to make his case. And we're watching him do it in this case. Totally. And and that was the thing. If you thought this episode this week was about fucked up cops, <laughs> you wouldn't be 
totally wrong, but you're also not right, but uh, totally true because it is the, it's that there's, there's movies out there that kind of have this sort of narrative structure sometimes where it's like the, this can't happen if this happens or like this, this was, it was like a domino effect of like, you know, now this character is in a bind because they made this choice and it sets everything up for the rest of the film and this other thing. Um, which I thought was like, it was really like impressive. And I know that this was like a remake of a, um, a film that came out, I guess it was in the nineties, like you said, but, um, that structure was, is super interesting and also just so stressful, like so stressful. Um, there's a lot of stressful parts of this movie, by the way, (laughs) the whole Uh, movie is very stressful, (laughs) (laughs) but just that whole predicament that the Will Dormer character is in, and on top of the fact that he's not sleeping. Yes. So he's kind of got this like weird um, state of consciousness the entire time that he's here. That is super, um, super, super duper stressful and put me on the literal edge of my fucking seat. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> and it's the other wild thing about this movie to me is that the other big name star in this film is Robin Williams and you do not even see him until an hour into the movie. Yeah. To the point where you forget he's even there. I think I read a Roger Ebert um, review of this movie and he said the same thing where it was like, you forget that he's even in it. Yeah. And let me just tell you, I mean, I went in completely blind because obviously I'd never even heard of this movie before seeing it, um, which is such a shame because it's really great. Um, I had to, Recheck the IMDb page like three or four times to be like, did I know that he was in this movie? Because also like the, around this time that this movie came out was when he was also in one hour photo. Like I, exactly. I want to say it was either the same year or like it a was year, the same year, same year. Yeah. So it was like the the year that Robin Williams like turned into a villain. And yep. Between those two movies, I was like, oh, my God, like, yeah, he he's fucking terrifying. But you don't know it until like half the movie's over. Right. Exactly. And it's we talked about this a lot in the, the Dead Poet Society episode, but he is a he he was. I got it still hurts my heart to say it. I know. I know. He was a fantastic dramatic actor and he really could do such. He had such a range. Right. And so. To see him do both of those movies in this year was really a great extension of his ability to be a villain and not just to be a non-comedic guy, but to be an actual villain. Right. And I now I'm thinking, should have I should I have said that? Because doesn't does that spoil the movie if I call him a villain? No, because no. that's OK. So you forget that he is in the film, which is a great way to reveal the bad guy. Yeah. But, you know, because he's a top build actor in a movie with Al Pacino, he's not just going to be playing like a grocery store clerk. Like, you know, he's going to have a pivotal role in this movie. And it's clear from the beginning of the film who it is who commits the crime. Yeah. So the interesting part of the movie isn't who done it. The interesting part of the movie is why and who is he? To me. Yeah. Oh, completely. I mean, I I have to admit at the beginning, I was really unsure about what was going to happen. And I actually kind of thought it was going to be like 
Martin Donovan. And I and I only think think I thought that because I like Martin Donovan so much. And I was like, I, I want know. him to be in the entire movie. <laughs> like, I want him to not die within the first like 15 minutes of the film. Um, exactly. But when it is revealed that it's ultimately somebody else, I mean, it is like a big shock. And considering yeah. how famous Robin Williams was at that time to like use him in that way in this movie is kind of surprising, but also like really satisfying i mean because it obviously like takes the story to another level right absolutely yeah because i think that it's it's you kind of know like once you know that it's him i think it's it's really impressive that they were able to keep the narrative structure going beyond that point because that's usually the point where most movies want you to get is you know who did it and we're going to obscure it up to a certain point it could have been hap it could have been this guy yeah um but they don't do that. They go completely the opposite way where they're like, well, we're going to take this character who's the character's name is Walter Finch. And we're going to make Walter Finch very obviously the person who did it. But then all of your questions become wrapped up in the for the rest of the movie in what the fuck, why, what's happened. You still don't have clarity around the act of murder. Right. Just because you know who did it. And I think that is that to me is a really cool um, and pretty fascinating psychological film to make because a lot of psychological thrillers and, you know, cop movies and things like that, they they don't they don't obscure that much or they're kind of, you know, they obscure too much. And that's that's kind of the, the point of it. So for this to be like, here, here's everything. This guy dies and this guy's the killer. And you're still like riveted. Right. I just think that's an incredible incredible way to make a movie yeah because there's kind of like two separate cases going on so there's the murder of the girl from -hmm. the beginning of the film which is the reason why you know will dormer and hap even go up to alaska and then there's the case of will dormer so it's that thing where you're like you're watching kind of two things play out at the same time and you're just always having to like pivot back and forth between like what you want to happen which i think is like what really makes this an engaging movie because the other component to this story too is that the hillary swank character i think she's kind of set up as like a like a newbie she's like this new Mm -hmm. you know cop on that's part of the fbi or whatever and she looks up to pacino's character like you said and she's just trying to study his move because he's this kind of like legendary detective and she's just trying to really like understand how he works. And then she gets put in charge of figuring out some, something that he was involved in. And now she has to kind of look at him in a different way. Yeah. Um, like she becomes suspicious of him and not, you know, whatever, like worshiping him or whatever. And that's a crazy feeling, too, because you can just see, like, as the movie progresses, her sort of like her pivot of having to be like, oh, my God, this guy was my everything. I studied him when I was in school to like, maybe I have to bust this guy for something. And this is fucking nuts. (laughs) Like, it's kind of amazing. It is definitely like you're watching the scales fall from her eyes. Yeah. And it's again, it's not done in a way that makes her look stupid or it it makes her look like an incredibly competent cop and an incredibly competent person um that she would be able to 
to take these risks against someone who is her one of her, you know, her heroes. Yeah. I, and all, there's also a scene with um, Maura Tierney has a very small role in the movie. Um, and she kind of plays the person who runs the hotel where Dormer and Happer are staying. And at one point, she says to Dormer that there are two kinds of people in Alaska, the ones who were born here and the ones who came here to escape something else. Mm. And she says, you know, I wasn't born here. So that also kind of gave me, it's not only great for the plot and it's not only great for, for what's happening in the, in the movie at that point, but it is also a very Alaskan feeling because that is true. It's, it's, it's an incredibly, it's, it's a place where people go to be free and to be free of what that's up to you, but they kind of want that freedom of nature to match the emotional feeling of freedom that they're, they're looking for. And, you know, that space is really uniquely set up for, for that kind of exploration. So there's a lot of like soul searching that happens in Alaska. And it's a very, it's an easy place to fall in love with if you're, you're looking for something. Um, So even like from my own perspective, I think that, you know, at first I went there thinking, well, I'm looking for, an adventure or I'm looking for something different from New York. But when I really dug into it and when I was thinking about it, you know, right before I decided to leave is I kind of came there looking for a way to feel comfortable in the world again, because Mm -hmm. my world had genuinely collapsed. Like I watched the World Trade Center fall and my world collapsed. The city I loved and knew the best was different. Um, The people were different. I was 23 and I just felt like I have to find another place to be comfortable in this world. So when I went to Alaska, I didn't think about about it that deeply. It was just like, oh, well, I'll get my car, drive to Alaska, whatever. But (laughs) when I actually spent time there, I realized that I was I was cultivating something much deeper within myself and that that place is very, again, like uniquely set up to do that. Um, I think that it's it's a beautiful place. It's it's so many people experience it by. Um, cruise and that's one way to do it but i think to actually be on that land and to like experience that place um it's special and it's a once in a lifetime thing and i'm I'm glad i did it but this movie was incredibly stressful and brought back a lot of stress (laughs) about living there um but it mostly just reminds me of of how how proud i am of myself that i made that decision and how glad i am that i made that decision because at 44 i'm not moving to alaska that is ultimately one of the most interesting parts of the movie for me is the idea of the Pacino character being from Los Angeles. And he kind of comes into this community thinking he's like the, you know, the guy you heard about, he's hot shit. Mm -hmm. And he kind of immediately sort of comes in and starts like, you know, not, you know, not really directly accusing people of not, have having not done a good job with the investigation, but it's just that he's kind of like, Oh, I'm back in this like yokel town and these fucking cops with their stupid mustaches. They probably bungled this case up so poorly, but that he ends up like, you know, really not understanding what this place is about. And he's kind of like crumbling in this environment, you know, from the sleep and just from everything that's going on. So it is that, that plot, device of you know it's a fish out of water story and kind of like a man versus nature story you know where he's just kind of there and he doesn't know how to 
to survive there in a lot of ways. And yeah, um, there's a there's a moment too where I think especially with the kids, like the kids, the high school kids that are involved in the crime, um, it kind of reminds me a little of Twin Peaks. And I know that that Twin Peaks is also kind of in that region of the world of that, like <laughs> ding dongs in the hinterland world. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but that environment I think makes for really good film and TV. And, um, Absolutely. I think it's super interesting that you, you live there. Honestly, when you tell me stories about it, and you've talked a lot about it on this podcast before, like just your, your bear stories and whatnot, you should get <laughs> Stitcher Premium, people, just so you can hear the bear story. Um, I think it's on an early episode, but yeah, I, I'm thrilled by the idea of living there, but there's a part of me that's like, am I strong enough to live there? Like even in my 20s, right. but especially now, I'm like, I don't know. I don't think I am. I think I think we should definitely visit because it is 100% your kind of place to visit for sure. Okay. You would have a blast there. Um, but it really is a different beast when you consider being there all year round. Yeah. And again, when I lived there, I was broke. I couldn't afford to fly home. I couldn't afford to leave. I couldn't afford to like take these trips and get away from it. I was just there for years and really getting into that place. And something you said also reminded me of um, something else that was in that Roger Ebert review of this movie when it came out, which is Ebert pointed out the fact that Dormer is in a place where because of the relentless sunshine, he can't hide. He can't hide from anything. Right. And that is very much a feeling that Alaska gave me the entire time I lived there. I lived in Anchorage for three years and I lived out in um, the Aleutian Islands for a year. And the entire time that that was the persistent feeling of like, I cannot hide from myself here. Right. I can't hide from my emotions. I had to really... It was the first place I really started looking at my depression. It was the first place I really started looking at like my emotional response to people and my emotional response to loneliness. And like, you cannot hide in that place, whether the sun's up or not. But there's also, you know, it's again, the winter, not much better. There's there's specifically a moment where I remember sitting at my desk. um, I worked for the University of Alaska for for a little bit and I I looked out (laughs) looked out the window and I saw the sun. It was like three o'clock in the afternoon and the sun kind of came up on the horizon and it was just like a little dim ball of light. And then it went right back down. (laughs) And I went and sat in my car when I left work that day and just cried. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I just cried. Can't even imagine. Holy shit. But it's, it's a gorgeous place. It's an intensely beautiful place to experience. Um, and it's just full of it's full of wonder. It's the first place I've lived, maybe the only place I've lived where I felt a sense of real wonder. And I think that this this movie just nails a ton of that. Yeah, I loved it. I love this movie. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad I say this often on this podcast, but I'm so glad that you get me out of my zone to watch movies like this, because, you know, for a movie from 2002, I, mean, I can't even imagine what I was watching back in 2002. Jeez, <laughs> um, I don't know. But it, this was off my radar. And I had seen yeah. Memento. So I, I guess it just like I just didn't realize that he had made another movie after Memento. And it's probably from the reasons that you mentioned. But I, it was just so surprising. And honestly, like it's so totally different from my movie, um, <laughs> both in like location and just vibe. But the vibe that it presents is definitely it's moody 
it's atmospheric it's like scary stressful obviously Mm -hmm. but uh, but ultimately like a really great thriller like i mean really really good really textured and thank you thank you for making me watch it because i enjoyed it I'm so glad you loved it. I, I, I didn't realize that you'd never seen it or, you know, what wasn't on your radar. So that makes me really happy. That's it. like one of the beautiful parts of, of doing this podcast is that we both get to watch things that we'd never seen before. Yeah. And I also like too when we do these like more personal sort of themes, because I like sort of seeing your movie going habits. Like I kind of like seeing a movie knowing that it has like a personal thing for you. So yeah, it's great. Oh, I love doing this. It's the best. I love this podcast. Are you kidding me? This week was awesome. And yo, if you're not listening to us on Stitcher Premium, I hate to break it to you because, again, I'm a person who doesn't enjoy experiencing FOMO and I rarely do. But you are genuinely missing out. (laughs) You're not listening to our premium episodes. They're only on Stitcher Premium and you can use the promo code SAW for a free month. So get your asses in there because... There might be a point where you're like, I don't remember them telling that story. It was probably on a premium episode. Probably was. It probably was. They're they're a lot of fun. And hey, if you want to email us too, we're always around at I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. And you can find us on our social, our social accounts at I saw pod on both Instagram and Twitter. And hey, look at us. We got merch. Maybe we'll make merch that says, hey, look at us. <laughs> Anything's possible. <laughs> In the exactly right shop at exactlyrightmedia.com. <laughs> hey, look at us, the world's only topless podcast. <laughs> and this is also, this is a great time for you to go and rate and review and subscribe. All three. Please do all three. Um, this is, it takes a minute. It really helps us. And we love reading your feedback and kind of knowing how we're connecting with you because neither one of us has a lot of time to be on Instagram or Twitter all day, but it's nice to check in in these different places and kind of see what you're responding to in the show. Yes. I, I love it. Love it. Love it. When we get really nice um, Instagram comments and people want to talk about their experiences with the movies and stuff. It's really great. But um we absolutely have to give them the movies for next week. Uh, do you want to do that? Yeah. So guess the theme. If you can, this is going to be a fun one. <laughs> I'm excited already. <laughs> I mean, every episode is a fun one, but this is going to be a fun one. Next week's movies are Little Children from 2006 and Desperate Living from 1977. Oh, my Lord. Please. And if you guess that theme, you might be able to get in on this $1 wager that Billy and I are making. <laughs> I don't think we're legally allowed to offer you money. No. But you can have the pride of, of knowing that you figured out this theme if you guess it. Yes. The pride of knowing is at least worth $2, if not more. <laughs> well, that's a, a big 10-4 old buddy. 10-10 on the other side. I'm going to the choke and puke. <laughs> I'll meet you there. I got a a a smoky on my tail. (laughs) All right. Well, see you guys soon. Thanks for listening. Bye. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our engineer is Annalise Nelson. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at I Saw Pod. 
email us at I saw what you did pod at Gmail. And please don't forget to listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. 